Thank you, Kelly. Um, my name is Amber McGee, and as Kelly noted, I am at Philadelphia Legal Assistance as well as Sarah Robinson. Um, prior to coming to Philadelphia Legal Assistance, I was at Neighborhood Legal Services in Pittsburgh. Um, so let me just share my screen here. Let me get this PowerPoint going. Okay, so our presentation is on civil litigation before, during, and after the pandemic. Now, we're all here for the same reason today. This is mandatory. Um, but all kidding aside, we chose this role. We chose to represent survivors. And, you know, this is a difficult role even before the pandemic. Oftentimes, our clients are the underdog. Um, so I think Sarah and I would both like to say thank you for everything that you guys do and that you're continuing to do as we adapt um, to these changing times. Now, all litigators are storytellers. Um, we want to make sure that we are communicating our clients' stories as effectively as we possibly can using all of the tools at our disposal to do so. Um, and so that's why we kind of chose this topic. Um, clearly it's very timely. Uh, before we begin, we realize that we have uh, participants from all across Pennsylvania, all of the different counties present. So if you can locate the chat box um, and right in there, what county or counties, if you practice in multiple counties, uh, you practice in, and then give the county courts a rating uh, from one to 10 based on their response to the pandemic. One being, wow, really bad, no access to justice any longer, super confusing, might as, you know, you know the deal. Um, and 10 being they adapted very well, um, very impressed, five stars would litigate here again. Um, so if you want to go in the chat and do that, we'll give you a couple of minutes and I cannot see the chat. So We're I'm seeing assuming some people already, which is great. I wanted to say this is a safe space. This is safe. We're going to be sharing <laughs> a lot of feelings today and this afternoon. So, um, but we are seeing some people weighing in already. Um, I'm happy and encouraged to see some higher marks closer to the 10. And we definitely want to be hearing from those folks as well. Um, so thank you for, for sharing your thoughts. And the, one of the reasons why we're doing this is um, after we go through the PowerPoint, we do want to touch back on some of the um, ratings that are in the chat, talk about how different counties are addressing different issues and how we can advocate for courts to um, adapt and perform better. Um, so hopefully after the PowerPoint, we can come back and, and talk about whatever is in the chat that I'm not seeing right now. <laughs> um, and with that, we'll begin. I'll switch the slide and Sarah, take it away. Great. All right, so although this is called before, during and after the pandemic and everyone hopefully is feeling some of the um, you know, positive changes of the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, I'm not sure if we really can call it after the pandemic um, quite yet. Um, at least here in Philadelphia County, we're still doing uh, virtual hearings. Everything is remote. The courthouse is closed off to the public um, and we're looking at maybe September. Um, but we can talk about you know, before and during and some of the adaptations that our profession um, and our specific courthouses and systems had to make. And it's no surprise to anyone in this session that there was a spike in civil legal needs arising directly from COVID-19. You know, we had an increase in domestic violence and interpersonal violence, um, unemployment, obviously a massive, um, massive influx of unemployment claims, um, housing instability, food instability leading to, you know, not being able to pay utilities or medical debt. Um, so a lot of different civil legal needs. Um, there was a, a massive increase 
And that spike alone, having you know more people than ever in need of our services would be a challenge for our legal aid community. That's challenge enough. But as we all know, that spike came in tandem with the novel, uh, perplexing, and sometimes downright infuriating world of remote lawyering. Um, I am technically a millennial, um, born in 1989, and so I have uh, I feel like sometimes there's this stereotype that millennials know what to do with technology and everything, and um, that is not the case with me. <laughs> so that's where the, in, the infuriating and perplexing aspects of remote learning um, really are most obvious. Um, but we're also going to be talking about, you know, some of the less obvious, more nuanced, more nuanced challenges that we face as lawyers having to take our skill set and adapt it to, um, you know, meeting with clients that we've never ever, and representing people that we've never even met in person. Um, never in my wildest dreams did I anticipate working from home on the regular just five years into my career. Um, and uh, if you can't tell already, it's not all it's cracked up to be in my opinion. I am in the office right now because I cannot be that far away from the copier. <laughs> if I could afford one of those bad boys at home, maybe, maybe I would. Um, but at least from my perspective, I would not have become a litigator or even a lawyer um, if it meant a desk job or being tethered to a laptop. And I hope, I'm sure, that at least one other person on this Zoom um, shares that sentiment. And if you're out there, I see you, I feel you, let's <laughs> start a support group. <laughs> um, but really, all jokes aside, I do hope that we hear from you guys um, during this hour. This topic, civil litigation, um, is very broad and our our individual experience and trainings are too diverse for us to really get um, detailed about something like how to subpoena a police officer in Philadelphia right now. Um, going into the weeds on that type of stuff isn't going to benefit anyone. Um, so we do wanna just talk about what, what's happening in our profession and how we are dealing with it. Um, as Amber said, I know we're all from different parts of the states um, during the pandemic, she was practicing in Allegheny County and each county, um, frankly, each division of, of court had a unique response to the lockdown. Um, as we were starting and as we'll get into, I saw some people were giving Philadelphia a rating of seven and um, in family court, I would not give a rating of seven. So I'm eager to hear, you know, what court system you're in and which section, which division. Um, but again, I can only speak to my experience as a Philadelphia family law attorney. Um, and later on, Amber will also speak to her experience in landlord tenant court in Allegheny County. For all of the spaces and places in between, um, let's get this dialogue going. Please be active in the chat. Um, and if you do feel compelled to speak up, please do. This is not a substantive law session. Um, we cannot touch on all the voluminous ways that your the procedural rules in your practice area have been obliterated. <laughs> so um, let's just, let's make it as interactive as possible. Um, all right, so let's dive right into what I am calling the allure of litigation. You might be sitting there pondering what drew this attorney to the profession. And if you're thinking it might've had something to do with you might be right. <laughs> um, actually, honestly, Legally Blonde did not have any bearing on my motivation to go to law school, but I do love this scene that we're about to play. This is a criminal trial, um, not civil litigation. And there are many, many technical errors that we can pull apart um, in the scene, but I want to play it. Um, just for some fun, and then discuss some of the hallmarks that we see in this that make litigating in a courtroom so much fun. Okay, just making sure you can see my screen. It currently has a pizza on it. All right. Yes, we can. Pizza, look so good, you know I gotta eat ya. Pizza, pizza. 
Um, Miss Wyndham, what had you done earlier that day? I got up, got a latte, went to the gym, got a perm, and came home. Were you got in the shower? I believe the witness has made it clear that she was in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Your Honor. Um, this window. Had you ever gotten a perm before? Yes. How many would you say? Two a year since I was 12. You do the math. You know, a girl in my sorority, Tracy Marcinko, got a perm once. We all tried to talk her out of it. Girls wanted to look for her. She didn't have the bone structure. But thankfully, that same day, she entered the Beta Delta Pi wet t-shirt contest where she was completely hosed down from head to toe. Objection. Why is this relevant? Oh, I have a point, I promise. Then make it. Um, Chenny, why is it that Tracy Marcinko's curls were ruined when she got hosed down? Because they got wet? Exactly. Because isn't it the first cardinal rule of perm maintenance that you're forbidden to wet your hair for at least 24 hours after getting a perm at the risk of deactivating the ammonium thiglocalate? Yes. And wouldn't somebody who's had, say, 30 perms before in their life be well aware of this rule? And if, in fact, you weren't washing your hair, as I suspect you weren't because your curls are still intact, wouldn't you have heard the gunshot? And if, in fact, you had heard the gunshot, Brooke Wyndham wouldn't have had time to hide the gun before you got downstairs, which would mean that you would have had to have found Mrs. Wyndham with a gun in her hand to make your story plausible. Isn't that right? She's my age. Did she tell you that? How would you feel if your father married someone who was your age? You, however, had time to hide the gun, didn't you, Chetney? After you shot your father. I didn't mean to shoot him. I thought it was you walking through the door. Oh, 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 my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Thank you, Amber. Listen. Even if that is not your cup of tea, that feeling of trapping a witness, I think is something that all litigators on this call um, can enjoy. Um, so yes, as I said, there are obviously a lot of issues with, um, you know, technical issues with how that Hollywood scene portrayed us. Um, but um, talking about some of, <laughs> and this, and then the I am not a cat, um, tying that together, you know, Elle Woods, you know, you could see that she was struggling with questioning the witness. She didn't know where she was going, fumbling with her paperwork. Now we're experiencing that as fumbling with our tabs. And I pray that you have a mouse at home, um, not because you're a cat, but a mouse for your hand. Um, but, you know, she was confident as soon as she heard that witness say something that she knew could lead her into a new, a new path and, and a way to changing the outcome of the case, you could see the confidence change. Like her physical body, um, her, her nonverbal communication, um, she had command, she had the judge's attention, she had the jury's attention. And I feel like those are things that we're lacking now in the virtual courtroom. Um, you cannot have physical presence, you cannot have nonverbal cues. Um, also speed. You could see in the end when she started doing a lot of those leading questions, she was very fast. And it's difficult with technology. Um, we, I'm sure we've all experienced now the echoes and um, construction or pets or uh, just, you know, just bad lighting or whatever it is. Um, you're just not able to, to perform in the same way. Um, so now instead of being confident Elle Woods, who's you know putting a major trap on the witness, we are sometimes reduced to urging to our colleagues that we are not cats. <laughs> um, and does anyone not know what where this image comes from and, and what um, how it came about? Okay, great. <laughs> no one willing to admit it. <laughs> no one willing to admit that they don't know. So this is um, in the um, in a district court. I believe it was in Texas. 
Um, yeah, and uh, one of the lawyers unfortunately had a Zoom filter stuck on uh, his, his Zoom video that made him look like a cat. And he was pleading with the, um, his colleagues, I assure you I am here, I am not a cat, I'm not a cat. <laughs> it was very, it brought some levity to an otherwise really you know, challenging time. Um, so next slide. So um, this is what I'm calling a story of loss or war stories, um, living room litigation, um, what it's like to go from the courtroom to your living room and have to adapt. Um, and we will talk, of course, about how this has impacted our clients as well, but I'm going to be sharing on, you know, how it's impacted attorneys and how we operate and what we've had to do to change. Um, but I, you know, you, you hear that like the courtroom is like a stage. Um, it's, there's props, there's sets, there's blocking, which is like an actor's term for how you walk and where, where you stand and all of the, you know, physical cues during a scene. Um, and, you know, every, everything you do in the courtroom matters. Um, I would, if I had a PFA trial and I had a, a lot of very great fo like photographs of injuries that were very illustrative of the injuries, you might want to like set that out on your desk and leave it kind of, you know, on the corner and just show like, hey, I have voluminous medical records. Like, you sure you don't want to enter an agreement? Um, everything has meaning. Everything has significance. So you're losing the ability to send those, um, those cues, those nonverbal cues. And reading people, um, you've had to really alter the way that you read a witness or you read the judge. Um, you also have lost the element of surprise. And I think that goes hand in hand with the, you know, the ability to um, be quick, um, the ability to impeach a witness just with a piece of paper in your hand. Instead, we've got to slow down. We've got to stop and ask someone to share a screen. Um, and then you're kind of highlighting, I have something that I want to confront you with. And um, you really lose that element of surprise. When you're a living room litigator, you also lose um, control over your client and the ability to effectively manage their emotional responses. Um, certainly we all do the best that we can through this, um, but it's not the same as being able to like lightly touch your client on their back, you know, if it's upsetting or to elbow your client, like not right now. Um, now we're stuck on like, sitting up really high or, <clears throat> or <laughs> making little, you know, little cues. It's just like, if I, I feel like I'm a, like a baseball um, umpire, um, just like, hey, you know, if I do this, that means stop talking. <laughs> um, and that's really tricky. Um, you know, I just two days ago had a client who got really fed up and upset and ended up ending the call and then tried to log back in and the judge wouldn't let her log back in. Um, so I think the ability to just click things um, on and off um, is, you know, it, it really plays into um, some people's emotional responses. And it, that's really been a challenge of, of relinquishing that control and just hoping that you've done enough to prep your client um, for how this process is gonna play out and what the outcome could be. Um, we've also lost, in my opinion, um, some of the decorum and professionalism um, that you know, we should strive so hard to keep in our profession. Um, I am proud to be a lawyer, proud to be a litigator, um, but it is disheartening when you hear things that you know, other attorneys are wearing sweatpants to court or, you know, they may even just be engaging in inappropriate dialogue with your clients, um, with you. And I think that, as we all know, it's easier online. Like I can't see any of you right now and I can just pretend that I'm doing this alone. We can hide behind these screens a little bit. And I think unfortunately that 
that um, pseudo anonymity or pseudo distance has led to um, some, some, some loss in our uh, professionalism. You're also losing out on the courtroom atmosphere, um, which again, you know, it's, it's great to be in the courthouse because you can go over here and you can pop into this courtroom, I'll be back, or you can, um, you know, go get a piece of, um, go get a copy of a pleading that you needed or file something. Um, it's not just our office spaces and my beloved copier uh, that we're missing out on. It's also the atmosphere of all of it, which contributes to the sense of professionalism, the sense of seriousness. Um, now, the courtroom, you know, there's, it's a double-edged sword because the courtroom is also designed to make people feel nervous, right? It's got, it's designed for a reason, but it makes people feel a little bit traumatized. It's very sterile. It's very serious. You don't know where to go, what to say, where to sit. And that's definitely by design. Um, but we can leverage that to our benefit. Um, and if we, you know, prepare our clients well enough, let them know who's going to be sitting where and what the, what the atmosphere looks like, um, we could definitely, you know, use that to our benefit. Um, okay, there's a few more losses here. And then I have something funny, hopefully to make you laugh. So we're not talking about all this downsides. Um, also losing out on judicial uniformity. Again, only speaking to Philadelphia Family Court, domestic relations, but now we have um, judges are giving us, some judges will give us uh, instructions on how to submit exhibits for their virtual courtroom. Some judges require uh, records that are in excess of 10 pages to be printed out and delivered to the courthouse 48 hours before your hearing. Um, some require that you uh, ask for a SharePoint folder and you upload your documents. Others are like, I don't care what you do, just have them ready for court. And I want you to be the one sharing your screen and not my clerk. Um, so there's really just so much diversity in how the judges are handling exhibits, um, differing rules for attorneys versus pro se litigants, um, and it's getting a little bit out of hand. Um, None of it is, you know, legal or lawful or there's no court orders saying this. It's really just a, a judge's preference. Um, but it's challenging when, you know, if you're, I was working remotely for a little while um, at the beach and I realized that my case got relisted in front of a judge who required 48 hours hard copies. And I was like, oh God, I got to go to Philadelphia tomorrow and hand this in. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it poses some problems. Um, okay, finally, one of the last kind of uh, losses I think you lose um, are the nuances of last minute negotiation, you know, being in the courthouse toe to toe with your adversary. Um, you know, I love to wear a nice tall pair of heels if I know that my opponent is, um, vertically challenged, you know, it just makes me feel stronger, makes me feel more confident. Um, and you really lose that just one attorney versus another um, and how it can kind of just the energy of being head to head like that um, can have a, an unexpected and delightfully unexpected outcome. So here's a clip from another, um, another lawyer movie that I love. Wait, before you scroll away, you need to hear this. We can't see the video. In one second. Thank you. Republicans across the country are moving fast to an All right, Samantha, how much will it take to put an end to all this? 50% of your estate. 50%? With a prenup and proof of adultery? What's your case? Our case is simply this. <laughs> uh, 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 
for the court um, and we're unhappy with the answer that we don't know when you'll have a hearing. Um, so telling people if you want to get this done, we have to you know, compromise and negotiate um, the necessity of the pandemic or the pandemic made that a necessity. And I think um, it's a trend that we'll continue to see. Um, we also had, we also saw the uh, creation of task forces. Um, so the, uh, the court administration, court operations, um, increasing their communication and transparency with the bar um, is a really great upside that I hope will continue in the future. Um, we are the people working there as well, day in and day out. And so I think that we should have more representation and more of a voice on um, you know, helping advise how we keep some of these upsides and do away with like what wasn't working so well either. Um, and then finally, I think that there's been an increase in community education um, because again, we can reach so many more people with the convenience of just presenting right in their homes. Um, and because I think people had nothing else to do, at least early on in the pandemic, that they were like, well, let's do some trainings. Let's have some virtual events. Let's, you know, get on Facebook Live and, and really talk to people and let them know that we're still here um, and uh, that we're still happy to represent them. I don't know what is coming up next, I think. Amber's taking over now. Yeah, so now we're going to talk about um, less about me complaining about what it was like for attorneys <laughs> and more about um, what's how to how this impacted our clients and how to adapt our skills to to serve them better. Yeah. So upsides and downsides aside, um, we've all had to adapt in some way or another to. Um, whatever the courts, whatever the judges, whatever your clients are deciding to do, how to deal with this pandemic. Um, so we've developed new skill sets. Um, the most important thing that I believe has changed is how we develop our attorney-client relationships. Um, it is still so important, even if we're not meeting our clients face-to-face, -face, or even if we are, um, to build rapport, to gain trust, um, and to deal with, you know, logistical issues uh, with our clients. We represent survivors, and with that comes um, specific concerns that we really need to address and realize. During the pandemic, we've all become masters of multitasking, right? Um, but we need to pay attention to our clients, um, first and foremost. So first off, building a rapport. Um, I wrote showing up and showing interest. And that really means, you know, paying attention to how your client's feeling. Um, if they want to see you face to face, you know, make that happen, whether it's on video or if you can do in person, in person. Um, I think it's empowering to clients to give them that choice. Um, how do you prefer to meet? Do you prefer to talk to me on the phone? Do you like to text? Uh, things like that. And when you do meet with them, uh, with the multitasking comes pinging, uh, pop-ups, all sorts of things. So show them that you really care and that you are truly listening and actively listening by maybe turning off the email pings, um, putting your phone aside if you're on a call, um, and just being open if you do have to pay attention to your phone. Um, you know, listen, I have an emergency that may be happening. I might check my phone, but I'm listening. Um, I think that that shows a lot. It goes a long way. Gaining trust. Um, first off, you should talk about confidentiality with your clients and realizing that different cultures uh, might look at confidentiality in different ways. They might look at your role as being connected with the court. Um, so it is truly important to explain to them, if you do not feel comfortable with me sharing XYZ, I will not share XYZ. Um, and again, 
asking their preference, um, honoring their story and their bravery for telling it to you. I heard this in another VOCA training, um, I think two years ago. I never really thought to thank a client for um, you know, telling their story and for being brave enough to disclose certain really personal aspects of their story to me and to the court. Um, that's scary. And although we do this all the time and we hear all of the gory details and sometimes unfortunately become desensitized to it, um, I think it's still very important to let your client know that you appreciate what they're doing, um, that they're coming forward and that they're doing the right thing in seeking help. Logistical issues and signing documents. <laughs> um, I'm sure different organizations have their own administrative uh, fun times and, and getting the forms that we need to maintain our funding. Um, if we can streamline those as best we can, that is so important. Um, nothing really affects attorney-client relationship as much as just chasing documents around and having the client maybe feel like it's more important for you to know what their income is as opposed to you know what happened last Thursday when they were scared for their life. So if you have issues with getting documents signed, um, I think it's important to address them, talk to other organizations and find the best way to streamline that process, especially since that process has probably changed since the pandemic. Lastly, on attorney-client relationship, managing client expectations is so important. Um, I will never tell a client, I guarantee you we're going to go to court, we're going to win, and I'm sure you guys all know this too. Um, but just letting them know what could happen um, and so that they don't get their hopes up and that you maintain that trust with them um, and their faith in you too. using technology to communicate with DV survivors. So I too am a millennial, but I do happen to enjoy um, learning different tricks and trades and different apps and using technology to the fullest. Um, so of course, different methods of communication. Um, I think a lot of the time now we're texting clients uh, chatting with them, emailing them, videoing with them, as opposed to meeting with them in person. And of course, there are pros and cons to that. Um, but it's so important to remember to address privacy and safety concerns and discuss the risks of communicating in different ways with your client. Um, I'm sure we've all heard in the news these past few years, really. There have been several hacking incidents. Um, there's Zoom bombing, there's uh, monitoring going on. It used to be you heard these things and thought, hmm, you're being watched, are you, are you sure? And <laughs> But it does happen. It really does unfortunately happen. Um, so it's important to talk to clients about ways to keep safe while using technology. Things like deleting your browser history. Um, if your abuser is, is looking at someone's browser history and sees that you know, your client is speaking with an attorney that might not fare well for them. Um, so talking to them about things like that is important. Um, and getting informed consent. So what I mean by that is, talking about the risks, um, the inherent risks of having text on their phone, um, someone may be overhearing a conversation, making sure that they feel safe and getting their consent to communicate with the client in that manner. Implementing code words can be very helpful, um, especially since if you're texting, you don't really have a way of verifying that your text messages are going to the right person and being responded to by your client. Um, I'm sure we've all had clients that have had their abusers gain access to their cell phones. Um, many clients whose 
abusers have destroyed their cell phones too. Um, so implementing a code word or a way of verifying that you're talking to the right person can be very helpful. Um, also things like determining, you know, what do we do if I call you and someone else picks up the phone? Um, I might not want to say, hi, my name is Amber. I'm an attorney. I might want to say something completely different to protect, um, our attorney client relationship. Um, what to say if, a, if someone else enters the room and your client is on the phone with you, maybe they'll say something like, oh, sorry, I'm not interested in your, in your product or something. Um, and then, you know, someone else has entered the room. It's no longer safe to have that conversation. Um, so this is a lot of safety planning, um, but it's safety planning also considering the new technology that, that we're implementing. Um, another thing to consider is tone and meaning. Um, I can't tell you how many times you have a text conversation with someone and you're like, oh, what do you mean by that? Or you might take it the wrong way. And, you know, are, are they mad? Did I offend them? And they're really just joking or being ironic. It happens. Um, if you get in a situation where you're texting with a client and you feel like there might have been a miscommunication, um, my advice is just to pick up the phone because it's a lot easier to assess someone's emotion um, and their tone by speaking over the phone than it is to just strictly have writings back and forth. Um, an app that I became familiar with recently that I think might be helpful as well to keep track of things like text conversations and evidence is called DocuSafe, D-O-C-U-S-A-F-E. Um, it's specifically designed as an evidence collection app for survivors. Um, I said before, many survivors lose their phones, um, their abusers might destroy them. Uh, this app backs up all of the evidence that's been submitted to it on a Google account or an Apple account. Um, so it's all backed up to the cloud. If someone's phone gets destroyed, they still have all of their evidence for court. And there are also very handy ways of sharing evidence using DocuSafe with advocates. Um, there are lots of resources on the app too. I promise I do not get a cut out of any profit that the app may get <laughs> for downloads. Um, but I did, you know, look at, look at it and it, it looks really helpful. So I encourage you to, um, you know, look into these things and, um, you know, see, see if they can make your life easier and your client's life easier as well and safer. Of course, with the pandemic, access to justice has been a challenge. Um, there have been shutdowns, there have been hybrids and remote access. Um, a lot of help desks have closed. So all of these barriers have been put in place and it seems like changes have occurred somewhat daily. So it's important, of course, to keep apprised of the changes, realizing that interpretation and language access barriers still exist. Um, if your organization can get things translated, maybe talk to colleagues about using those forms as well, um, translated into different languages. There has also been widespread misinformation. Um, there's nothing like a client telling you, hi, you know, I know the court is closed and I can't file anything, but, and you're like, no, it's open and we can absolutely help you with this. Um, so there's been misinformation, you know, from third parties, people seeing things on social media, the news, um, you know, hearing it from Aunt Sally, <laughs> um, law enforcement, you know, basically take on, taking on our role as attorneys and giving legal advice um, to our clients that simply isn't true. And, you know, our clients seeing things, you know, on social media, um, getting their legal advice from Facebook. Um, so that's something that we really need to combat as um, public interest attorneys as well. 
Um, we've been doing a lot more outreach, which is great, especially in the counties where um, courts have essentially closed and we have some extra time on our hands or had some extra time on our hands. Um, but I think we need to keep doing that. And the pandemic has made people realize just how, um, just how widespread this misinformation can get. Okay. So on this slide, we just have some practical tips for virtual hearings. Um, obviously, if you're on the record and someone's shaking their head no or nodding yes, um, it's the same as in the courtroom. You do need to articulate what is happening um, for the sake of the record. Can I add in there as well that um, not only like nodding what you do see on the screen, but I've had to say like, um, you know, if the court, you know, would take notice that it, there appears to be a person off screen that the witness is speaking to, um, or uh, the witness continues to take their video off and put it back on, or is going over here, cloud of smoke, and then you come back, <laughs> things like that. So um, I have definitely said things like, um, for the record, there is a large plume of smoke and emanating and <laughs> things like that. So um, you got to get it in there because nobody's going to come sm smoke or vape in the courtroom. So um, to really maintain that idea that this is a courtroom, um, I like to yeah, articulate everything that I'm seeing and that I don't think the court is noticing. Right. Um, so also um, remembering to request accommodations for clients. There's a huge backlog, I think in most courts right now. Um, the worst thing that you want is to um, you know, have needed a translator and maybe didn't request one all of a sudden the hearing gets pushed back for months. Um, of course, maintaining professional standards, um, you know, realizing what's around you, what's behind you as well. And that also plays into um, confidentiality. If you're in your office, maybe you have files behind you with other clients' names on them. Um, so be, being aware of not just, you know, where your client is and what's going on behind them and where the opposing party is and what's behind them, um, but your environment as well. Um, having a plan for evidence submission, uh, as Sarah said, every court's different, every judge is different, and every day is different. <laughs> so asking for their preference and making sure that maybe you don't send in evidence one way, maybe you send it in all the ways just in case. Um, and testing your tools, um, especially when it comes to technology, you want to make sure if you have a video, they can see it, they can hear it, um, and, and access everything that you need the court to access. One more tidbit about having a plan. Um, in some child custody cases, the court will want to hear from the child. Um, and pre-pandemic, this was child testimony was done usually back in chambers with just the judge. Um, typically, attorneys would waive their right to be present, um, but if they didn't, both would show up in the back as well. Um, but now you don't have the ability to have that private conversation. Um, and I have found in my experience that not every courtroom has anticipated the need for this and whether the child is with your client or with the other parent, um, someone needs to get them on the phone, but then that means the child is not, you know, or that the, the party is not present. And then it's, so it turns into a real mess. So just make sure you think about where the children are, who is supervising them, who's providing them with the device um, and uh, make sure that if you encounter someone if you encounter a courtroom that doesn't 
isn't prepared to deal with that, that you can um, take the lead and, and give them your plan. Absolutely. And also making sure that clients understand that when they are testifying, it's just supposed to be them in the room and not some other third party or the child. Um, you know, that's happened at least to me. Um, so just making sure that they understand how important it is that they are on their own in the room uh, when testifying and during the court proceeding. So now we're going to talk about some specific areas of law and how they've been affected by the pandemic. Um, I did do a little bit of landlord tenant litigation while in Allegheny County during the pandemic, um, went to some MDJs and it was like the wild west, <laughs> uh, the wild west of, of Pennsylvania, quite literally. Um, everything, in every courtroom was different. Every MDJ handled things differently. Um, there were a lot of new uh, specific programs that were implemented and it really, um, it really bolstered the importance of holistic representation, right? Um, because if you're representing a client in say a custody action and they're about to lose their home, um, that's going to affect their ability to maintain custody of their children. Um, same goes for utilities. Um, so it was all the more important to kind of put on um, a social worker hat too. Um, if you have social workers that work at your programs, great. If not, um, you know, sometimes you have to pivot and do some advocating and, and help clients um, who are eligible for programming um, access the programming and, and get the funds to keep their housing. Um, so there's been a lot of um, activism as well due to the pandemic. Um, I'm sure people have heard a lot about, um, you know, increasing the minimum wage and unemployment um, and how that has affected um, our clients, a lot of our clients are lower income. Um, so there's been a lot of advocacy there. And um, the effect we only have about five minutes left. Yeah. Um, and we, we, we talked a big game about how we want people to participate. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if Kelly wants to um, do the other poll and if we could um, bring in some of these responses from the chat. Yes, I have the poll up and ready. Um, attorneys, this is the second of the two CLE poll boxes. Please respond in order to receive um, CLE credit. I will leave this up for two minutes. And Sarah and Amber, please feel free to continue. Great, thank okay. you. Sorry, Amber, for cutting you off. <laughs> no worries. Thank you, Kelly. And Sarah, we, we have a more substantive presentation scheduled for tomorrow. So I'm wondering if maybe you want to pivot to... Um, some of the responses in the chat and cover a little bit of this tomorrow. That would be great. Yeah, we're doing family law basics tomorrow. Um, so we can cover some of how the pandemic has impacted practice in family law. Um, one thing I did want to note is um, Larry from PLA said that a practice tip he uses when instead of managing a client's emotional response in the courtroom, he will um, text the client mm -hmm. uh, during um, during a hearing as a substitute to like whispering or saying, you know, like what what is the you know what is the witness saying that's a lie? Write it down for me. Um, of course, we don't want to be texting with clients while they are actively testifying, um, <laughs> and uh, and you know we hope that our opponents are not doing that as well. Um, and then other responses, I saw a nine in here. I don't know if the person that gave their county a nine, um, this would be Northumberland County, changes to access, we've got a nine. But we've safety two. Safety two and, and changes to access nine. I'm interested in that. Um, or if anyone who gave their county, Perry County, so a nine. Uh, this is Heather Kelly. I did the Northumberland County. So we never really shut down. Can you hear me? I'm sorry. Yes. 
okay, I'm in the Outer Banks and I'm like walking on the bay. So I wanted to make sure. Um, so we, we never shut down, not a day in Northumberland County. So it was terrifying um, in terms of the pandemic early on, you know, in March and April. Um, they did do, they never considered final PFA hearings to be a non-essential. And we tried a million, you know, types of advocacy to get them to consider those as non-essential or at least carve out ones like where there wasn't custody at issue, where there wasn't. So if a defendant's incarcerated, like, why are we in a rush here? Right. You know, they're not trying to get their house back. They're not trying to get custodial rights back. I could understand the situations where the temporary interrupted custodial rights or um, possession of property, but they wouldn't do anything. Um, and so there was never really an impact on access to justice because everything was business as usual for the work I do at least because I do primarily PFA and related family law matters but what we were finding was not only was the public health part really scary early on before we knew more about transmission and all of that but also they would have their safety precaution was wait out front until you're called for your hearing. So the judge is in a bubble up on the bench. He's, he or she is safe, but I'm out front. One day I had seven final PFA hearings, two or three defendants like wanting to negotiate on the street straight out of jail at the same time. Nobody had been through court security yet. My clients are waiting outside with me. Um, there were times in, I work in Northumberland, Union and Snyder counties. And there were times in both courthouses where we had whole sheriff's departments out with quarantine and COVID. And so we'd have maybe no courtroom security at all, or we'd have a PO with a gun in there with us. Like, so I felt like it was, and, and frankly, you know, these are counties where the substantial majority of citizens didn't even believe in the virus. So, um, you know, you felt like we, we worked really hard, especially in Northumberland County to advocate for alternatives and all of this. And, um, you know, court admin wouldn't answer. The judges would say, you have to talk to court admin. It was a really, I'd say March, April and early May of last year were just incredibly stressful. Um, but there was no loss of access to justice as a result. So I don't know. And nobody put a sign on my door that said she's a hero. <laughs> right? Like, like they did it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm on it. <laughs> oh, I'm joking. I don't need it. But, you know, that was just incredibly um, difficult. So that was Northumberland County and a bit of Snyder and Union. They were better. That's what we Northumberland County now is going to be at a deficit when it comes to like um, technology advances in your county? Yeah, so it's really judge specific. We do have one judge that was doing all this, all the CYS work was being done. Um, you know, all the shelter hearings and everything that was all being done by Zoom. And it, that largely falls on one judge. So it was really judge specific. Um, but then, you know, in their defense, I was in one, they did do prisoners. I'm sorry, they did prisoners by closed circuit TV. They weren't transporting. So that's the other thing they did. But the technology is so bad. Um, you know, and at one point it was like they didn't have a charger for the iPad. We're not even talking about outdated equipment. Like the guards at the prison couldn't find the charger and the iPad died in the middle of a hearing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, we're definitely in a deficit and we're not set up for this to happen again, which I think science would tell us it could very well happen again. Um, so, I mean, but then I had a client who said she had COVID. So we did this whole, my husband at the time was a state hearing examiner. He could administer oaths. So we did a whole affidavit where he administered an oath and she swore she had this virus and the judge would not do, like would not allow her to get a temporary without showing up physically to court. They weren't doing temporaries even remotely. So, I mean, it was, it was awful. Um, <laughs> That is very, that's really infuriating. Thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Um, that. That's really helpful to know that experience. Now we have all of our temp PFAs are virtual. Um, or, yeah, and it's really, it seems to be going really smoothly. So mm -hmm. um, I know we're past two o'clock. So if anyone wants to go, please. But um, if anyone else wants to share. Um, especially, 
Heather in the Outer Banks, your vacation is very well deserved. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, but I'm good. I'm walking and listening. <laughs> All right. I see no one some, else? Yeah. I was going to say, I see some threes up at the top. Westmoreland, Lebanon, Beaver County. So, I mean, hope, hopefully we can advocate for some changes to be made. Like Heather said, science says this very well could happen again. If there's anything I've learned from the pandemic, it's that anything can happen. Um, so, you know, hopefully we can continue to communicate um, and advocate for better response to things like this. Hopefully it doesn't happen again, fingers crossed. Um, Maybe we need to create a statewide task force then. <laughs> we can try to have some, yeah. some uniform responses across the board. But um, well, thank you everyone uh, for being here today and you will see us tomorrow um, for Family Law Basics. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Amber. And we will see you tomorrow. Have a great rest of the day, everybody. Thank you.